This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we uncover the history of the Iron Bridge as it turns 240 years old. And it gets the name The Iron Bridge because it was the first bridge to be made out of cast iron. It's the first freestanding structure to be made out of iron, out of metal. We hear how its creation marked a turning point in engineering history. Architecturally, technologically, the Iron Bridge is sort of symbolic of the way the world was being made anew during the, the Industrial Revolution that took place here between 1760, 1830. And we'll learn how the Iron Bridge's design has influenced other large-scale projects worldwide. All that to come with English Heritage's Iron Bridge expert, Matt Thompson. But first, here's a blueprint of what's coming up soon on the English Heritage Podcast. What English Heritage felt was really significant here was that feeling of such a complete space, of it being untouched and being a bit of a time capsule. Quite often we have visitors who are very local and the first thing they'll do is come in and say it smells right, it smells just like how my uncle's workshop used to smell. The Sixth Earl of Chester, when he started building Beeston in 1225, he wanted it to be a massive fortress and originally the walls were all painted white so it really would have been a beacon in the landscape. This is the famous portrait of the Duke of Wellington painted after Waterloo by Sir Thomas Lawrence. Often if you have a pub called the Duke of Wellington, this is the picture that hangs outside the pub. Make sure you subscribe to your podcast provider to catch up with the latest episodes every Thursday. Now, 2019 marks the 240th anniversary of the Iron Bridge being installed over the River Severn in Shropshire. To celebrate that milestone, we're taking a close look at how it came into being, how it revolutionised the use of iron, and how it's paved the way for other engineering projects. Joining me to discuss the historical impact of the Iron Bridge is Head Collections Curator for English Heritage, Matt Thompson. Matt, thanks for being with us. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So Matt, before we give the Iron Bridge due attention on its birthday, could you tell us what your role is as Head Collections Curator and explain what the Iron Bridge is as well. Yeah, of course. As head collections curator, I work with a team of people across the country to look after the object collections that are related to the properties that we care for. So that could be the paintings at Kenwood House, that could be the archaeological objects on display at Corbridge and Hadrian's Wall, or the huge number of items that we keep in store as well. But my relationship with the Iron Bridge is quite a long-standing one. I've worked in the area for a long time and live relatively close by, so I've been helping to support my colleagues with the the recent project that we've been doing to restore and and conserve the bridge over the past couple of years. What is the Iron Bridge exactly? It does what it says on the tin. The Iron Bridge is is a bridge and it's made of iron and it goes over the River Severn, one of the most important trading rivers in the country back in the 18th century, in the Iron Bridge Gorge. It's in Shropshire, it's say, what, 35 miles west of Birmingham. So whilst it feels out in the countryside to one degree, it's actually connected to the big metropolis, as it were, with a, with a relatively short journey. And why is it called the Iron Bridge? As the name suggests, it's made of iron. And it gets the name the Iron Bridge because it was the first bridge to be made out of cast iron. But we need to qualify that in one sense because it wasn't just the first 
bridge to be made out of cast iron. It's the first freestanding structure to be made out of iron, out of metal. So it's a really, really significant uh, sort of turning point. Architecturally, technologically, and uh, from an engineering perspective, the iron bridge is sort of symbolic of the way the world was being made anew during the, the Industrial Revolution that took place here between 1760, 1830. So it's a really fundamental, sort of pivotal point in the history of England, but also Britain and the wider world, because, of course, the techniques and technology that was developed here very quickly caught on. And this is why we see so many buildings today around the world, the Burj Khalifa and the Empire State Building. To one degree or another, they all owe a little bit of debt of gratitude to the Iron Bridge that's here in Shropshire. So what else makes it so special then, obviously? It's got a big place in history, but um, it has a a number of key attributes that have been lent to it over the years. What are they? Well, I think it's important to think about the bridge in context and the area itself, which is known for a long time as Colebrook Dale. The town that's grown up around the Iron Bridge is known as Iron Bridge, one word. But that area has, for centuries had a long association with industry, with iron founding, and you know, with the production of iron objects. And that's because the geology in that area provides all of the raw materials that you need, from limestone to quality coal. And it provides everything that you need to actually create iron in, in large quantities. So the area itself is really the cradle, the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. And so the Iron Bridge feels very much like the sort of culmination of technology and experimentation taking place in an area that now feels really kind of bucolic. It feels like you're in the heart of the countryside when you're down in the Iron Bridge Gorge. Uh, but of course, it wouldn't have been like that a couple of centuries ago. So it's a, it's a really significant place. And the Iron Bridge itself is the kind of poster boy, as it were, of all of the developments that took place within this location. So if we were playing a game of Iron Bridge top trumps, or, <laughs> or we were playing a game of top trumps with lots of bridges across the world, what would be the special attributes of the Iron Bridge? Well, of course... It's the first in terms of a, of, a, of a metal bridge, and that counts for a great deal. It's a scheduled monument, and it also sits within a World Heritage Site. And I really think that that's of huge importance. So the bridge and the surrounding landscape has been recognised as having outstanding universal value in terms of the impact of the things that happened here on the rest of the world. This isn't just a national story or a European story. It's an international story, the story that takes place within this landscape and that's really signified by the Iron Bridge itself. And it puts the Iron Bridge in a category of some pretty esteemed monuments such as you know, Hadrian's Wall, uh, Stonehenge, but also further afield, Petra and Jordan or, or the pyramids in Egypt. It really puts it right up there with the best of the best. What are some of the key features for modern visitors? I think the most important thing is to look at the bridge within the landscape. So you have this this steep-sided gorge and you have the River Severn running through it and you have the bridge that, of course, crosses and joins together the two sides. And I think what the visitors really need to be aware of is what was going on on either side of the bridge at the time when they were planning it and when they were building it. And both sides had really well-developed iron industries. And the, the important thing was to try and join those two sets of industries together. It was very, very difficult to get across the River Severn. And you read in newspapers about people and horses lost and goods ending up at the bottom of the River Severn because it was a treacherous river to cross. And so a bridge 
really made sense to big industrial areas and they really wanted to make sure that they could get across the bridge. So it's important to bear that in mind when you go and, and you have a look at it. When you look at some of the earlier parts of the bridge, because of course it's been worked on and, and modified over the centuries, but the original framework of the bridge is made of metal, of course, as the name suggests, but actually all the joints are woodworking joints. So you see they've taken a carpenter's eye and reproduced it in iron. Because the idea of making this out of iron was kind of sort of in advance of the technologies they had of thinking about how they might join these bits of iron together. And so what would you do? Scarf joints, lap joints, pegging it through. But on the iron bridge, you see it in iron as a symbol of the Industrial Revolution. You can imagine uh, what the scene would be like with sort of a very light frame scaffold and people all over it sort of trying to raise these ribs up and then peg them all together. In terms of the geography, Matt, some of our listeners obviously might be from overseas and some people might not know the Shropshire area. So can you describe Mm. the land and what it looks like around there? Of course. Well, this bit of Shropshire, which is in the West Midlands, sits in between the big cities of Birmingham, Wolverhampton, and then the, the hills and mountains of Wales further to the west. More specifically, the area of Colebrookdale sits in what's known as the East Shropshire Coalfield, and it was quite an important coal field for, for many centuries. But the geology and the geography, as, I, as I've previously mentioned, provides everything that you need for the manufacturing of iron. But when you couple this with the fact that the River Severn runs through this area, you have something really, really special. Not only do you have the raw materials that allow you to make the stuff, you've then got the highway to get your stuff to market and get it out and get it sold. At this period, the roads were dreadful. Metal goods or large amounts of material taken by road. It could and did happen, but it was incredibly expensive, very, very slow and very unreliable. But the rivers, of course, they were the lifeblood. They were the network that joined everything together so you could get your stuff to Bristol from there you could take it on vessels around the coast and take it pretty much anywhere you wanted to so there's a lot of very very special things came together the presence of coal limestone iron ore plenty of timber in the early years because they needed charcoal to fire the furnaces before they started using coal and converting that to coke and then of course the river to get your finished product out so it's a really really special place where this kind of checklist of things that you need it's kind of got a tick in every single one of the boxes so it's no surprise that industry really grew up here for the first time and I guess it comes as no surprise that the town where the bridge straddles is now named Iron Bridge, one word. That's right. And I think there's something else that that's indicative of, is that the bridge was a practical thing. It joined two sides of the Iron Bridge Gorge together and helped people move goods and people and all sorts of things over what could be quite a dangerous river. But actually, the moment it was, it, was, it was built and open to the public, if not before, it was actually a tourist attraction. It was so symbolic, so redolent of the modern world in the late 18th century that people came to see it. And we have some fantastic quotes of people who travelled to the area to have a look at the furnaces and the forges and the bridge itself. And the, the town really sort of grew up around that sort of early tourist industry as well. So it's a really interesting relationship between industry and spectacle. So looking at the bridge itself, uh, we touched a little bit on this, but um, we've got a sort of ribbed-like structure. Can you describe what else 
the Iron Bridge looks like and some of the colours today? Because I understand it might have had a new paint job. The Iron Bridge is made up of a series of, of ribs that are joined together through small iron struts known as the radials. There's other elements as well that join that onto the abutments on either side of the banks. And then on top of this structure, we have these incredible deck plates that kind of tie into the, the structure underneath and that creates the um, the surface that people can walk along and that up until 1930, I think it was 1934, that people could drive their cars and lorries and trucks over as well. So it's quite an interesting structure insofar as it looks very, very light. You can see a lot of light through it. It's not a heavy structure. It's, it's quite an elegant, it's quite a beautiful structure as well. A couple of nice things is that when the water level is just about right, the reflection of the water, it's almost perfectly circular. So with these with these lovely ribs and then their reflection in the water, we're pretty certain, of course, that's, that's an intentional aesthetic device. And you can see it on a lot of the early paintings and engravings as well, that there's this fantastic sort of circular sort of image that you see you know, with the reflection in the river. Now, the colour, it's now this fantastic, deep sort of mahogany red. We undertook some really in-depth paint analysis uh, to try and get a better understanding of what the colour of the bridge might have been. There's a lot of debate about that, and we spent a lot of time thinking about this. A bit of backstory is that we're blessed with the Iron Bridge to have a large number of historical images of that structure in colour. So there's a lot of oil paintings and watercolours and coloured prints into the 19th century. And for a lot of these images, you can see that it looks grey or it looks black. But one of the earliest, well, the earliest colour image really to be sort of publicly produced is from 1780, from just before it was opened to the public. And you can see there that it is this sort of deep mahogany red. But after that, it seems, you know, according to the historical record, to go very, very dark. So we're aware that the Iron Bridge has been painted many times over its lifetime and that actually in the 20th century, there was a lot of work undertaken to strip off all the early paint so you can have a good surface with which to put a new paint job on. So we weren't entirely convinced that we were ever going to find any remnants of the original paint colour scheme on there. But we were very lucky. We did find one or two areas that have been sort of hidden behind others in joints and cracks where we could actually take some very, very small samples and working with these great experts that we, we brought in for, for the job, they took them away and examined these under an electron microscope and they could see layer upon layer of paint and they could take it right back to the layers of paint that were adhering directly to the rough cast iron surface of these component parts of the bridge and indeed it was this deep red uh, almost like mahogany colour. So how do we go about creating a bridge made of iron in this pioneering technique back in the late 1700s? What's the process? Sand casting that's what we're looking at here so you'd make a wooden pattern for each component and you would put that pattern into a effectively a big sand box so that you would push down, you create a mould from that pattern. And within that sand, into that mould, you would then run your molten iron. So this could be done for small things, could be done in boxes, effectively, boxes full of sand. You would put your pattern in to create the mould and you would run the iron directly out of the furnace. In terms of actually constructing the bridge itself, this is something that was a bit of an enigma until relatively recently. It was probably only about 20 years ago when an image was found in Sweden 
by a chap called uh, Elias Martin, which is a little watercolour, very small, very modest watercolour, which appears to show the Iron Bridge with just the first couple of ribs up and this very, very light framework of scaffolding. And that really was the clue to give people the opportunity to think more about exactly how it was constructed. But of course, there's still a lot to learn. We still need to know a lot more about that construction. You talked about the casting there of the Iron who are the cast of characters? I mean, who are the main architects and engineers in the story of the Iron Bridge? Of course, we wouldn't want to overlook you know, fantastic people such as John Wilkinson and, of course, the architect, Thomas Farnells Pritchard. But the main name, really, is Abraham Darby III. So he's the third generation of iron founders to be in the Colebrookdale area. His grandfather, Abraham Darby I, he arrived and took over the lease of the Colebrookdale furnace and was the first to smelt iron with coke in a commercially viable manner. His son, Abraham Darby II, continued the business and Abraham Darby III was the man who was around and who was involved in the construction of the Iron Bridge and was very much the sort of pivotal character in all of this. And the Darby family play a huge part in the story of the area and the story of industry as a whole. They were a Quaker family. That's really interesting because, you know, the role of the Quakers in industry is a really important story. Presents some really interesting challenges because as Quakers, they didn't believe in having their portraits made. So we have no images of what they looked like. So we don't know what Abraham Darby III looked like. But they're a really interesting family and they really were the ones that pushed everything forward in that area. How long did it take to build from concept to completion? I gather there needed to be an act of parliament to even get it started, really. Well, whilst the Iron Bridge itself took about three months to build in the summer of 1779, so we're looking at 240 years ago, there were a good several years of preliminaries that had to go beforehand, such as getting an act of parliament. You needed to have an act of parliament to build a bridge. There was clearly going to be some work required on expanding the foundries and the furnaces to be able to produce the the items that were needed. And then once the bridge was actually up in 1779, it didn't open to the public until New Year's Day in 1781. So there was about a year or so while they were working on the approach roads and the abutments to actually allow people in. And it's really interesting that because we see one of the most famous images of the Iron Bridge is from 1780 and it shows a carriage speeding across the Iron Bridge and this was really a piece of fantastic advertising on the part of Abraham Darby III because whilst you can see this carriage speeding across the bridge at the time it was painted you couldn't do that because the bridge wasn't open to the public and it wasn't completed really so it was a long process of several years but the actual construction would look like it took around three months in the summer of 1779 and did they come in under budget or on budget or over budget (laughs) <laughs> the initial budget was around about £3,250, £3,200, and it looks like it came in around about £6,000, I say double, which we all know from lots of projects that that's not unusual. Was, was there a charge to cross then, bearing in mind this fact that they've overspent by twice? There was a charge. This was a toll bridge, and I think it's um, it's really important to remember that this was business, and there had previously been toll uh, ferries, So you'd pay a charge to get across by ferry, and it was no different with the bridge. This is another element of the bridge that's particularly interesting. The Quakers didn't recognise the sort of power or authority of certain sort of social structures. So they were very clear to say on the table of tolls that the bridge was private property, 
and that every officer or soldier, whether on duty or not, is liable to pay toll for passing over, as well as baggage wagons, mail coaches, or the royal family. But you don't pay today, That's do correct. you? No, you don't. No, it's free for everybody. The charges were taken away in 1950, and so since that time, anybody can go over there without paying their half penny or their threepence if they wanted to take carriages drawn by six horses, mares, geldings, or mules, and and the list goes on. <laughs> How often does a bridge like this need maintenance? We're talking about something that is 240 years old now. Well, clearly, throughout its life, it has always had attention. You know, the abutments have been replaced, other little arches have been added, there have been cracks, there have been bracing put on. You don't just build this and walk away. It exists in a very dynamic landscape that puts a lot of pressure and strain on the structure, and so there's always kind of running repairs and changes and things that need to be, to be undertaken. But of course, in the 20th century, when this monument began to be appreciated for its international significance, then we find that perhaps every 10 or 15 years, there's a programme of works just to keep on top of things, to try and ensure the survival of the bridge into the future. I guess one of the more ambitious ones was the construction of a, a large concrete strut under the bridge in the River Severn itself and this strut was put in to stop the sides of the bridge being compressed by the movement of the land on the gorge on either side. That's a huge piece of engineering. But yeah, every 10 or 15 years there's been work undertaken on it. But the work that we've recently undertaken has perhaps been the most ambitious programme of work that it's seen and we really hope is something that's going to ensure the safety and security of that monument for the next couple of centuries. So looking ahead to the future of the Iron Bridge, and we've talked about the maintenance there, what was the legacy of the Iron Bridge and the story of the Industrial Revolution? The Iron Bridge isn't just the first Iron Bridge, it's the first freestanding metal structure. So when you go to New York or when you go um, in Taiwan or wherever it might be and you see skyscrapers, you know, ultimately the sort of technology, this is the great, 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 great grandfather of these structures, very quickly the idea of iron framing in buildings was adopted. And there's Ditherington Flax Mill, which is just um, in Shrewsbury, not very far away at all. And we see that from there it really blossomed out. And the idea of using iron, and then of course it was eventually steel, but the idea of using iron to frame a building just seemed to make a lot of sense. It wasn't prone to rot. It certainly wouldn't catch fire, and that's one of the real key things that people wanted, certainly within a mill environment. And it's this technology that went on to have this fantastic influence on architecture and the architecture that we see around us now. You know, when you think about a new build today, unless it's a timber frame building, you know, very often you're going to start with a metal frame, a freestanding metal superstructure. That is the legacy. That really is the legacy. And that's why this site is so special. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. For more information about the Iron Bridge, just head to the Iron Bridge page of the English Heritage website. And to find out how engineers made cast iron in the 1700s, just head to our YouTube channel and search for Engineering the Iron Bridge. We're back next week. Until then, don't forget to review and subscribe. Thanks for listening. See you next time.